I thought forever that like being gay meant that I would never be happy as an adult. Mm -hmm. And you know, and then after that, like being an alcoholic meant like I would just be drunk until I died. (laughs) Yeah. And like, there's so much life like ahead for me. Sobriety living sober is just such a gift. Welcome to this episode of Rooted Recovery Stories. My name is Patrick Custer and I'm your host. We're so glad that each and every one of you are here. It is National Pride Month and as such, we are elevating voices of some very special people all month long, sharing their story from the LGBTQ plus community. And today I'm so excited to have my friend from all the way from New York City, Will Gans, Three-time Emmy, three-time Emmy award-winning uh, journalist from ABC. You might have seen him on Good Morning America or ABC World News or many other platforms. Um, and now this one. And now this one. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Patrick. I'm excited and nervous to be here. Normally, as you just said, I am, I'm asking the question. So it's like, it's very different and a little intimidating to be on this side of the conversation. Well, I'm equally as intimidated because (laughs) I'm doing the, the, I'm, I'm questioning the pro now. Um, and you know, I have to add that you are one of my favorite storytellers, um, because that's what you, you know, get to do all day, most days of the week. I'm very, very lucky to, have the job that I have and and to be able to share the types of stories that I get to share because mm. for the most part they're very uplifting and joyful um stories so uh which is also what you do here I know so um your work is important and I'm excited to be a little part of it today absolutely so I want to start off with a dive really right in and ask you um <laughs> So we're talking about your story of recovery from addiction. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is the first time you've chosen to go public with this. And um, why why did you make that decision? And what was it like when I asked you? you (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think it's important that, you know, during Pride Month um, to draw kind of a comparison, right, between coming out because I've come out before. Mm -hmm. Um, as a gay person and I am coming out now as someone in recovery as an alcoholic you know there are a lot of different ways to say it and the process is kind of similar it's scary it's you there's a lot of navigating like who to tell your story to and when to share it and you know why why you might decide to share it Mm. Um, there is there's, I'm, I'll probably bring her up again today, but there's a Brene Brown quote that says, we share our story with those who deserve to hear it. Mm-hmm. And I think of all of the people who came before me who have recovered and are on the other side of, you know, addiction or whatever, who are brave enough to share their stories and why, you know, that helped me when I was in a kind of a dark spot for a while, you know, um, So when you approached me and you said, is this something you'd be interested in doing? Um, You know, those things considered, like the decision was kind of an easy one to make because Mm -hmm. it was like, you know, I, if, if me talking about this at all can help, you know, anybody, you know, the version of me from two years ago or three years ago or whatever, like needed to hear stories like this. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think that's 
kind of how my decision was made and and um also it's you and you're amazing and this oh, podcast is amazing my gosh. And, you know so <laughs> thank you uh, i you know this is uh anybody who's been on board and continued to watch knows that this is just a huge passion project of ours at promises and mine and just in my life and um so every additional you know heartfelt story that we get to elevate is is um all that much more meaningful so today is no doubt going to be just that and your beautiful explanation of why we share our stories is is I love that Brene Brown quote as well. Mm -hmm. So very true. Before we go to the very beginning, I'm a very chronological person and I like to go back to the start. But, um, you know, back to how I found out you were starting your recovery journey um, was you shared it with me through Instagram and, you know, being so vulnerable to somebody we had never met, but I think you, you, know, you knew through my platform what I did and I was hopefully you felt safe enough, you know, confiding mm -hmm. in me with about that. Um, I think that anytime we open up about our brokenness or like that we're seeking a change in our lives with someone, it is a way of maybe not even asking for help, but it's help slash accountability slash, you know, all the different things. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you in that space, who were you choosing to talk to about? Like, what was your mindset around asking for help or sharing for accountability's sake? I think that, I mean, like that Instagram DM um, was probably coming at a time in my life where like I was trying a lot of different things mm -hmm. to control the way that I was drinking or how much I was drinking and like I was doing in my mind, I was like doing all of the things I could to see how I could make it work, you yeah. know? So like whether I was listening to new podcasts or reading new books or trying, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but like trying to, okay, like maybe I just won't drink hard liquor or I will only drink two days a week. I was like in that space of my life where it was like, let me just see like, what are the ways I can, the different pathways I can try to like control my drinking. Mm -hmm. And let me see if this stranger on the internet who, you know, whose like platform I, I like have, you know, really grown to like, like has any other advice, you know, mm -hmm. like anything that he can tell me that I'm not trying yet. Because at that point, everything I was trying was really not working. Um, and I was trying a lot of different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's I, I appreciate you sharing that piece because, um, oh gosh, there's, I think there's so many people that feel so much shame. All of us actually, no matter what brings us to our feet that brings us to the ground. Right. Um, you know, when we're struggling, um, the shame and the guilt that's hanging on our shoulders so much of the time prevents us from even saying to someone else I'm struggling or getting honest in any way, shape or form. And, um, so I think it's important that we talk about those periods of, of, you know, like screwing up people don't, most people don't get sober and then just stay sober the first time. <laughs> and I think there's this misconception that I've talked to a lot of people that say, you know, for the first number of years, once I finally got sober, I had it in my head that I was such a screw up because I, it took me screwing things up 
multiple times after I decided I wanted to try and get sober or fix my life before I actually was able to stay sober. When in reality, that's like most people's story. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, that's exactly it. And like, as someone who is an alcoholic, like you watch other people who are not alcoholics successfully moderate or like pregnant people, for Mm -hmm. example. And you're like, my God, they can just give up drinking for nine months. And like, it's totally great (laughs) for them. And like, I would give up drinking until, you know, my next headshots or something. Uh You know what I mean? And it was a shit show of a two week period. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. so, you know, and yeah, for me, it was like, it was never a black and white switch until it, it has been, you know, yeah. like it, it never worked until it did. Yeah. And I tried all of the things, <laughs> you know, to make it work. Mm. I definitely want to get into that as we, as we move forward. But so hopping back to the very beginning, um, if we were talking to young, you know, little Will as mm-hmm. a child, mm-hmm. how would you describe, you know, your earliest memory, if you were to describe where you were living, what your family life was like, from that perspective, how would you? Baby Will. Um, (laughs) Love a good Moira Rose (laughs) reference. Oh, hello you. Um, I, so I am from Texas. Uh, I am the middle child. I have an older sister and a younger brother. I have, my parents are amazing. They're still together they're you know they it was they have a very like rock solid marriage that is something to aspire to um so the middle child from texas like dallas fort worth area um very catholic family pretty conservative leaning politically um but and this is like something that i get self self-conscious about um especially in sharing like my like history of like it my childhood was very good mm-hmm. like there's no moment looking back that i'm like oh that's the reason i'm an yeah. alcoholic yeah. like there's no you know there's nothing like crazy dramatic that happened or something that like you know sometimes you hear other people's stories that are like dramatic af and you know yeah. it's like something from like a you know a spielberg Huge film trauma. Or something. right yeah and um you know my childhood and everything was like very great like um earliest memories you know like we we were also very close with like my mom's extended family my grandma my grandpa um on that side and you know so you know it was a it was a good childhood i do like i i'm interested in birth order and like how that affects people's personalities and stuff but i do think being the middle child like i there was always some sort of like a attention seeking you know, like thing going on with me because like my sister always had her shit together. She was very type A. My younger brother was the baby. So like he was, and I will say this in public, my dad's favorite for sure. Um, so <laughs> what would your dad say to that today? I agree. Probably. <laughs> um, so, uh, and he still is, it's fine. You know, it's, it is what it is. I'm okay with it now. Um, but like the ways that I, like would get attention, you know, like I did, you know, start doing theater from a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. I like ran for student council and like, all, but it was like, you know, joined every freaking club there was like, so I think that like whatever attention I felt like maybe I wasn't getting 
and not that it was bad or anything, but like, I definitely like always felt like I needed to overachieve as, as a baseline. Maybe. Mm. Ooh, that's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. So getting your needs met Mm -hmm. emotionally Mm -hmm. meant that. Did you have a sense of, of feeling like your value was less than, I mean, like, are you basically saying like you didn't know, but you, there's a part of you that knew deep down inside that without overachieving, you weren't going to receive the acknowledgement or the value and appreciation that you felt like you deserved. Yeah. And I think also being gay and knowing that I was gay for was also a big part of that because it's like there's this thing that I know about myself that in my eyes and in the eyes of like the area and like the you know environment where I grew up Mm -hmm. and it's not just my family you know it's like Texas I mean whatever it was like anyway knowing that I was gay and that there was this thing inside of me that I considered wrong Mm -hmm. you know so it was like that being like, okay, well, if that is the secret that I'm harboring, let me show everyone just how great of a person I can be. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I'm going to be student body president and I'm going to, you know, get straight A's and I'm going to like, yeah, like the only option was to overperform. Mm-hmm. So how how early did you know that you were gay? What age? It's like a kind of a fascinating question. I mean... Like there are, I remember like freaking out at age four because I didn't get to go to the Spice Girls concert with my sister. (laughs) It's like, that's kind of a red flag or in this case, a rainbow flag, I guess Mm -hmm. you might say. Um, And like, it was probably, I think the same age that everyone starts having feelings for like whoever they have feelings for. So like junior high maybe Mm -hmm. when it's just like, oh, like you know i feel and like i've always felt more comfortable sitting at you know in the cafeteria with a table of girls than i would with like a table of bros who are talking about sports <laughs> or boobs or yeah, whatever they talk yeah. about you know yeah um so like for me it's always i think it's like just always been a thing but i it was never like something that i was comfortable like claiming as my own identity right so then what at what age was it that you actually did um acknowledge what I, I guess come out of the closet. So you came out to yourself and I can, yeah. at the 12 ish age. Sure. Yeah. But and then was like probably sure of it. Like for freshman year of high school, I like did a brief stint of coming out. It was like a trial run. Uh-huh. Um, probably around age 17. Didn't go very well. It didn't stick. I didn't stick the landing. Um, what do you mean by that? I like came out to my family, but like it didn't, it was not, we all decided that maybe it was just a phase. Um, mm. it was not just a face. <laughs> I'm here to tell you as thir- as a 31 year old, it was not just a face. Uh, and then like, you know, probably like in college is when I was like, cause I went to college in New York too. Mm-hmm. So I made the move from Texas to New York and like, it was a whole new world. And I was like, Oh, like there are people here who are gay and that doesn't matter to anybody. You know what I mean? Like it's just a thing about them. It's not the only thing about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say like by age 21, Um, I was out and also then like was when my family started like, you know, also getting comfortable with that idea too. So, um, yeah. So would you say, well, I'll, I'll rephrase this a different way than in my brain. Um, 
the first community you felt that you found safety and comfort and re relatability in was that when you moved to New York and yeah, like and embracing like and not hiding anything. Right. Yeah. Um, would have been like college friends and like, you know, going out in New York city and being like, Oh, like these people are out here <laughs> like, you know, whether it was a gay bar or not, you know, just like people can just like walk down the street and if they're gay, they're gay. And if they're straight, they're straight. And mm -hmm. like, truly there's nothing, it's not something to try and mask. Yeah. Like, you know, so I think like the more comfortable I became in New York city, the more comfortable I became in, yeah, myself. And, um, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, not everybody. I, I love asking that question, especially to people in our community, mm -hmm. um, because, uh, you know, some, some people don't find that freedom in that, that community until much, much later in right. life. And, um, so, having recently gotten to ex experience the, the New York, um, <laughs> life for the first time, mm -hmm. that was, that was really cool for me, um, as well. But so, you know, moving into the period of, um, talking about like mental health and addiction, did you and your family, do you, does it run in your family at all? A and B, did you, have a narrative of talking about how your family uh, approached those two subjects? Um, so I would say this is actually interesting and I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So as, as far as mental health goes, I don't think there was a narrative in my family. Like we didn't talk about it and like it, no one went to therapy or mm -hmm. anything or was on medication for anything. Um, especially when I was growing up. It just yeah. wasn't a thing. It was, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Like, we just didn't talk about it. We didn't know about it, maybe. Um, as far as addiction goes, so I had one uncle on my father's side who, I, as long as I can remember, you know, like, was an alcoholic, was unhoused most of his life, like, as far as I knew. Like, you know, I remember one time he came to our front door and, like, we literally were hiding in the closet like from this man when my dad went to, you know, and this is my uncle. Like, wow. um, so that was like what my idea of an alcoholic was, mm -hmm. was someone, a homeless person who was someone to be afraid of. But then on the flip side, I mentioned earlier how close we were to my mom's side of the family. So my, we used to hear stories, my grandma and my, so this is my grandma Franny, who was like my favorite human being ever, ever. Uh -huh. Um, and Papacito was her husband, Johnny Summers. So, um, like growing up, they lived in New York, they had a bar in their basement. So, and it was just like, their home was like warm and fun and always full of fun memories. And like, we heard stories about like their 23rd wedding anniversary when all of their friends came over and were going to try and finish 23 bottles of champagne to celebrate. Oh, wow. But exactly. Which like, and you do the math, like they're in their forties at this point, like uh -huh. partying like that. Uh -huh. But it never crossed my mind that like, that's a little bit much, you know, uh -huh. like, because it was always such a fun story and like this crazy thing happened and, you know, you know, like someone was taken to the hospital cause he fell off the car. But like, it was like, 
the stories that you kind of tell about like drinking in college maybe. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and then like there were other stories too, you know, just about how like if my grandfather was ever like hungover or maybe drunk, like my grandma would just say, oh, he has a virus. And like, you know, uh, how many times did he get the virus? Like things like that, you know? So like not saying that there was any alcoholism on that side of the family, but certainly alcohol was like a very celebrated and like invited you know, thing, even like when my grandma ended up passing away two years ago, like my sister had like special labels made and we put them on bottles of Merlot because like that was her favorite drink. So like the alcohol, the our my perspective of alcohol, looking at it as it relates to that side of the family was like something to like keep close and like have with every meal. And like, you know, every celebration was very alcohol linked, you yeah. know? So I had this like idea that And I think growing up too, like when I was like debating whether or not I had a drinking issue, I was like, well, if my grandparents were finishing 23 bottles of champagne at age 46, I'm fine. You know, like I have plenty of time to get my shit together because they were still raging, you know, well into it. But, you know, that's like one isolated story that I knew, you know. You only need one and you can just run with it. Cling to it. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow. So that's a pretty great story, though. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a good story, too, which is probably why I was like, oh, this is amazing. And yeah. I should be trying to finish 23 bottles of champagne with someone one day, you know, like, right. I don't know. Goals. Goals. <laughs> Goals. <laughs> so when did you first, how old were you when you first got exposed to drinking, like, as a regular basis socially um i like i was a very good kid in high school so like i didn't drink in high school i was like you know i had friends and stuff but drinking was not a part of our like social routine at all so i would say like i started drinking regularly in college um you know probably like later into my freshman year so like Mm -hmm. 19 20 years old um and it was like i was okay at it Mm -hmm. when i first started (laughs) It wasn't causing you problems. You were just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fun until it's not. It's fun until it's not. Yeah. Um, but I remember like the, I, I remember the initial feeling of being like whatever anxiety I had around connecting, like how I said I would never sit with the bros at, you know, at the cafeteria, mm-hmm. like after a couple vodka sodas, like I could talk to anyone. And like in college I was living with bros, you know what I mean? Like yeah. in your dorms, you're, you know, my first year roommate was like a straight guy from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. My second year, it was a straight guy from Baltimore and a straight guy from Long Island. And then, like you know, so like, I think that like, I was having to, I was using alcohol to just like, be like, oh, I can adapt to whatever environment, environment you needed I'm, to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I think that I can identify with that. And I know, I feel like some people, some of, you know, a lot of people that might not even be in our, the the LGBTQ plus community can, can relate as well. Just, you know, in different, in different ways, but you know, I mean, so many of us are not comfortable in our own skin for one reason or another. Right. And, um, so when did, uh, when did it become problematic for you? And do you remember how, like, were you did you acknowledge that it was pro- a problem at the time um i don't think so like so i would say like 
it, around maybe age 26 is probably when I was like something I'm not drinking the same way other people are drinking mm -hmm. because like for a while, like, like I said, like I was drink pretty normally. There were like a few isolated incidents in college where like one day I woke up in my best friend's dorm and like looked in the mirror and there were SpongeBob band-aids all <laughs> over my face. And I was like, I looked bad like it was like and i think my initial thought was like thank god i don't live at home like mm -hmm. my mom doesn't have to see mm -hmm. this were the band-aids covering wounds up? yeah yeah okay. it was not just but if it was just spongebob band-aids i'd be like oh this is funny but no it it was like i so what had happened was i was climbing a fence and fell oh. and like landed on my okay. face um and i think it was like the parking lot of a white castle. I don't know if you guys have white castle here, oh, but do. it's like, they may be closed, but they're still there. Yeah. Um, so it's like nowhere that I needed to be getting into that desperately. Yeah. A white castle. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Um, so like that, I remember waking up, no recollection of what had happened, but like waking up in someone else's dorm room with cuts all over my face and SpongeBob band-aids. And I was like, that's scary. Um, but it was like, you know, I was like, uh, oh, this happens to people sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, cut to when I really started realizing that. Wait, I, you made excuses for um, my drinking? Yeah. Me? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, you know, I was like, oh, it won't happen again. And like everyone yeah. has a night like this. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, there would be other things too where like I, I did black out a lot. Mm -hmm. But when I really started to notice was like mid 20s, mid. Yeah. Like I would drink and almost always blackout, but also often like pass out or fall asleep wherever I was. So like if I was at someone in someone's backyard upstate in New York, boom, asleep by the pool. And you know, like it might be, and the excuses that I would make for this is that, you know, because I work in morning news, like I keep very weird hours and often, you know, I spent four years on the overnight shift. And so I was like, Oh, my body's just more tired than anyone else at this party. Mm. So I fall asleep because my job is hard, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, or whatever. So that became the thing. It was just like, Oh, like there, you know, Will's asleep in the, you know, whatever. And so I, I, I love that you went ahead and answered that because I love asking that question yeah. to people. Like, what is it that what's the lies? What were the lies that you told yourself that kept perpetuating the disease? Mm -hmm. Did you also like were people at this point inquiring, like noticing that you were drinking differently at, and at different rates than your peers? Or was this just an internal dialogue that you had? I think that like this is this is an interesting question. I have been blessed and like this, I could start crying about if I think about it too hard, but like some of the friends in my life have like stayed by me through, they've seen me asleep at Marie's crisis, which is this very, very fun, like, you know, piano bar. Like, so I, there were not people dropping out of my life that I was like sad that were mm -hmm. like leaving or anything. Um, and that's a credit to my friends, not a credit to me handling how I was drinking. Um, but looking back, like, you know, I'm still single now and it's, I joke about it, but like, I'm certain that there are dates and like relationships that fell apart mm -hmm. because these people would be like, what the fuck is happening mm -hmm. here? You know? And so like, there were things like that, certainly that like, 
you know, I, I'd be like, I can't believe he didn't call me again. Like, you know, like yeah. who wouldn't, who, you know, like I'm fun. I'm nice. Like I have a good job. I like, why am I not make, why am I not off the market? And like, it's like, well, probably because you blacked out on your second date with this person. Like, that's not cute. Yeah. Um, and then the first conversation I had was with my, one of my best friends, Alex Chin Fong. Um, we went to this, like, uh, I know exactly where it is in New York. It's on like eighth and 21st, this like little restaurant. And of course I ordered like Cosmo or something. Mm -hmm. And it was after our, our, I think five year college reunion or something like that. And he was like, I'm concerned about you. Like, and he was the first person that ever like vocalized anything. And I was just like, not mad at him, but just like, but felt like a deer in the headlights. Mm -hmm. Like someone else is seeing what I've seen and shoved aside for so long. Mm -hmm. And he, he said it. And, you know, I kind of like, I, maybe, maybe, I don't know if I kept him at an arm's length after that so that I could keep drinking or what. And then my other friend, Brandon, I remember we had this like, looking back, like beautiful kind of life-changing conversation, like by the river one time where he was just like, I want the best for you. And I know that how you're drinking is not the best for you. And like, I just, I believe in the person that you are and can be without any of this. For someone to like vocalize that, it's just like, you know, it's to say the things that like, I guess you, when you're in active addiction, it's like you stop believing that you're worthy of anything. Yeah. So to, to hear someone tell you like you're worthy and you're, this isn't how, how it should be. It's pretty remarkable, you know? Well, and what I, you know, I just thought about like kind of tying back to your childhood of those feelings of being a middle child, feeling like you had to outperform, achieve to just to achieve, to achieve your worth mm -hmm. and moving forward to your twenties where you know, you're in a city where you're vying for, which journalism is, I mean, I can't imagine being on your career path and, you know, doing, having to work the way that you, you all have to work to mm -hmm. make it and, um, do the amazing things that you've gotten to do, um, especially while bat battling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I do think part of the the reason maybe I kept drinking for so long is one, I mean, like our industry, like people drink and like, mm -hmm. you know, you get to the end of the work week and it's like, Oh, that was wild. What we just had to do for five days straight. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, my boss I've seen certain bosses, not the, my current ones at all, but, um, like the drinking culture was very heavy. And I also think that like my job is cool. You know what I mean? And yeah. so like, I think for a while I was like, well, if I have this cool job, I can't be an alcoholic because like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm still working in a cool industry in a cool city at a cool, you know, like, so I was like, my drinking can't be that bad because, you know, I am still getting <laughs> paid to do something right. Awesome. Um, you hadn't in your head, you're saying you, you're talking about like, I don't, a bottom hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And what did had you thought had you kind of defined was your bottom becoming like in your head it would have had to been 
becoming your uncle to be enough to admit that you were an alcoholic? I think so. I mean, I think like, yeah, I think like having a Brock bottom would be like losing all contact with my family, Mm -hmm. having no friends, having no job. Um, you know, so I think that that was the thing. And I also like, this is such a horrible thing to say, but like there were times when I, it, I never ever wanted to die, mm-hmm. but there were times when I was like, well, maybe if I get cancer, I'll stop drinking. Like mm-hmm. it was like, that will be the thing. Like, I'll just have to focus my whole life mm-hmm. on like, mm-hmm. you know, going to the hospital and being he- like staying, you know, like it was like, that was like what it was going to take because like I had tried as I was saying before, all the other things like, you know, only drinking beer or only drinking on the weekends or whatever. And it never worked. Right. So in my mind, I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't, that rock bottom seemed so far away Mm -hmm. becoming my uncle. Yet I so desperately wanted to stop drinking or control my drinking that it was like, what's the in between, you know? You know, cause I did, you know, I still had friends and I still, you know, but I was so deeply unhappy and unhealthy that it was like, you know, I don't know. It was, those were the types of thoughts I was yeah. having in active addiction. You know, talking about the denial that we go through, it's interesting that you bring that up about, and all reference for, I will say, like, obviously with, in regards to cancer, but you know, we, the, the realness of denial here is that, and this is why I'm bringing this parallel up. I think it's ironic because in my probably similar stage um, of of my addiction, um, I when I say similar similar stage, maybe we were um, I was I was consuming a bit more than you were, but I just mean like the progression mentally, right? So mm-hmm. um, I was having physical signs that were like numbness in my hands and different things that were I I could not avoid any longer. And, um, I'd convinced myself that it must've been something like cancer. Um, but like it couldn't possibly be cause I would do like some little Google. I knew what the deep down, I knew what the answer mm-hmm. was, but like I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't confront it. So like the, the denial piece for me was just like, it's, pro- <laughs> it's probably cancer. And then I, but I right. didn't do anything about it. Right. right. It couldn't possibly be the drinking. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think so many of us can identify with the, the, like, there's a slow suicide process to it where we just like stop. We're really discontinuing a genuine care for our life yeah, and what have you. And so what point was it for you? You know, you had those two friends that connected with you and shared their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, what point was it that you started that initial, um, try to make it make that first change uh or even just contemplate so um i was working overnight shifts for a while Mm -hmm. and so kind of how that would work sometimes is like you know i'd go in at 7 p.m or whatever so there had been a few occasions where my bosses at work who in hindsight you know helped save my life like be like hey something's wrong here you know what i mean like you know t- do what you need to do and then we'll talk about it or whatever and so like a couple of times my mom had come up to new york she is you know one of the most selfless people alive 
and I had mentioned before that my grandma's like my favorite. My mom is my hero, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but this one particular time, my mom was having a surgery. She'd had it scheduled for forever. And uh, so she was like, you know, stuck in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it, my bosses, like I had, you know, they noticed that like I was not doing well. And they were like, you need to, you know, take a, take a little bit of time, you know, do what you need to do. And so my mom was unavailable to come up. And I, so it was the first time as an adult that like, I was like, I have to get this together on my own. Mm. Like whatever steps are being taken need to be mine, you know? Um, and so I reached out to a friend who I knew was sober and well, circle back to this in a minute but like thank god people publicize that they're sober because it gives me yeah uh, like it's the lighthouse that like i was like i don't know who to ask for help here Mm -hmm. and you know i asked him i was like what did you do and he recommended an outpatient place to me and i went the next day and i remember like because i had like been drinking pretty heavily like my body was a fucking wreck and i ordered a milkshake from this like truck outside no. of this outpatient place oh no but it was like the only thing in my head i know i know but like so i was like literally like shaking and anxious and nervous mm-hmm. and like walking out of an outpatient place which like to me was like i never Im- obviously you don't imagine no that, yeah. you know <laughs> like it's not what i aspired to ever mm-hmm. especially walking out and then ordering a fucking milkshake like get a grip but you know, I remember, and I need to remind myself of these things because it like, you know, that's like where I was at was like the most I could do was walk into an outpatient place, take the first step, walk out, order a milkshake and like start my life over again. Um, and so I did, I was able to take a little bit of time off of work and like, you know, I was in intensive outpatient for a little bit, which I don't think I've shared with hardly anybody. Um, and I started going to a 12-step program outside of outpatient. Um, and it was just like, I also am very lucky that I was raised Catholic. And, you know, so for me, like finding a relationship with a higher power was pretty instinctual. Mm-hmm. Like I already had one. Yeah. Um, and so just like any suggestion someone gave me, I was like, I'll take it. Like, whether it was from outpatient, whether it was from, you know, a, this 12 step program, like, I, I, you know, anything, someone was like, this might help. I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's interesting that cause a lot of us, it takes, it takes a minute, even once we start that initial path to embrace the concepts mm-hmm. of honesty and acceptance, let alone radical acceptance. And you're describing to me what I think radical acceptance looks like when you throw your arms up and say, what I don't, I don't know what's best in mm-hmm. any way, shape or form for my life. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's healthy around me, like, yeah, you're, you're like, what, what, what do I do? Right. And I, I mean, I was really lucky because like the people that I asked, thank God were like, gave me good recommendations. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. And I, you know, I, probably a little bit of that like overachieving like mentality that we were talking about earlier. Like (laughs) when I started the program, I was like, I want to get through these 12 steps faster than anyone's ever done them. You know what I mean? How did your sponsor feel about that? He was like, pump the brakes. Uh. (laughs) That's not how this works, you know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but like if I, you know, if I get the steps done faster, I'll be, you know, fixed 
uh-huh. faster. Uh-huh. And graduate. Of course, right. I'll graduate and, you know, I'll be healed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, n- now I know that, like, it's not that's not what it is. And yeah. That's not what sobriety is. And, um, you know, like, God, I keep getting emotional, Patrick. Good. <laughs> but it's like it's it's just I I went in there to stop drinking and I like have learned a new way to live, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, it's just, you know, it's getting sober and getting my dog <laughs> are like the two best decisions I've ever made. Your dog is so precious. Yeah. He's the best. For those who don't know, what kind of dog is it? He's a rescue, um, hashtag adopt don't shop as they say. Uh, he's part Chihuahua, part Frenchie. Yeah. Um, so he's like nine pounds, but has the attitude of a little French bulldog. <laughs> yeah. You got him on your Instagram, don't you? Oh yeah. He's yeah. all over the gram. Yeah. You're, He's the we'll most have, important part we'll, of my Instagram. We'll have we'll have stuff on uh, the the show notes. Um, so if you're if you're tuning in, most definitely you'll be able to follow uh, follow <laughs> along with Will's journeys um, and adventures and and check out Archie. Right? Archie, yep. yes, yeah. Um, so, God, he's a really cute dog. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so we're dog people, if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um, but uh, so. I, I'm interested to know if you've thought about before what your priority, how did your priorities change between what you saw as, um, living life good before versus what you see as living life good today? Oh my God, Patrick. Um, I mean, I think when I was drinking, everything was happening to me. Like, like I was a victim of all everything. Mm. Um, you too? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the other thing too. I thought I was like so unique in that, you know, uh-huh. like that, like my first breakup was like more dramatic than any other breakup that anyone had ever had. Mm. And like, how'd you handle that breakup? I drank about it, you know, and like I made, I was trying to get you to go to the Taylor Swift. I, the next sentence out of my mouth was about to be that I made playlists heavy, heavy on the T Swift. Um, which by the way, I enjoy her music even more sober because it's like, you know, it's, you see the genius of it even more. Um, but like, like in 2021, I like had a really like sad thing happen with the guy that I was seeing at the time here in Nashville, I might add. Um, but this trip has changed my mind. I, Nashville is my new favorite city. Heck yeah. Um, but like that happened in April. My grandma died in June. My aunt died in July. My uncle died in October. And like, I was like, of course I'm going to be drinking about this. Like mm-hmm. all of these things, like I'm a victim of these things. And like, it, you know, now knowing what I know and like seeing, it's just like, these things happen to everyone mm-hmm. and like I can react to them how I want, mm-hmm. you know? And like, I think there was just such a, uh, there was such a lack of control when I was drinking. Like I couldn't hand my reactions were always horrible to everything, you know, like, uh, you know, and, and now it's just like, it feels the world feels a lot I'm less anxious about everything. I'm it I'm single, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like 
I love my job. I, and like, however long it takes me to get the next promotion or the next whatever, like, it's okay. I'm like, it's going to be okay. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health. If you or a loved one are struggling with trauma, addiction, or mental health, we are ready to answer your questions and help you take that next step. Call our admission center at 888-648-4098 or visit us online at www.promises.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Even recording this podcast, like speaking so freely about being gay and about being in recovery, like those are scary things to know that are just going to be like released into the world. But like mm-hmm. whatever happens, I'll be okay. Heck yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I was in a, a meeting the other night and uh, shared this with you, but like, you know, a, a girl in the in the front of the meeting like raised her hand and was, you know, I had spoken a little bit about how much of myself I've tried to hide for years and years and years, whether mm-hmm. it was being gay or being an alcoholic. And this girl raised her hand and she was like, those are the things that make you you and they're, they're the reasons like, I love you so much, you know? And it was just like, I thought forever that like being gay meant that I would never be happy as an adult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then after that, like being an alcoholic meant like I would just be drunk until I died. <laughs> yeah. And like, there's so much life like ahead for me. And even if there's not, if I walk out here and fall into the wood chipper in the back. Oh gosh. God forbid. No, don't manifest that. <laughs> but <laughs> like, like it's all okay. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's just, it's, you know, I said it earlier, sobriety, living sober is just such a gift. It know? is. Uh, you know, I didn't know you pre sobriety. But I have to be think. grateful. <laughs> <laughs> you oh, dodged gosh. that bullet. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the the observation I was just going to make is that I, feel, I, I can't help but think that just knowing you as much as I do, I've gotten the pleasure of getting to know you so far. I feel like you love yourself on such a beautiful, healthy level um, that I, even many people I know in recovery haven't gotten to this place yet. Mm-hmm. And. I know that that is a byproduct and a gift of working, not only working in program, but working a good program Mm -hmm. because yeah, we're not loving ourselves before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and that's the other thing too. I have, I wish that I could people who are not alcoholics. Like I wish I could bring everybody and be like, look at this, like, there is a program. There are programs like yes. everyone can benefit from this. Yes. Especially. I mean, obviously I know what it's designed for and who it's designed for, but like, you know, it is, it's just, yeah, it's given me the chance to like course correct a lot of things and like, look at myself and look at like, you know, there's a Taylor Swift lyric in the song Karma. I keep my side of the street clean. It's just like, all you have to do is keep your side of the street clean. And like, yeah. you know, your world is is set. Great things keep happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, you know, you hear all kinds of different things in the, in the rooms of recovery and, you know, it's not necessarily guaranteed to be, I've heard it's not necessarily guaranteed to be better, but it will be different. It's this or that. And I mean, honestly, I feel like in most cases that you see, you start doing the the next right thing, Mm -hmm. things get better. The promises do come true, you know, and that shit works fast too. Like I, (laughs) I like recently got promoted and, you know, got off of the overnight shift and I was like, this is all I had to do was get sober. (laughs) Why didn't I do this five years ago? You know, it does work fast. And like, listen, the other thing that I've learned too is like in sobriety shit is still going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. Like Monday night, I found out that like this ex that I thought was like the one or, you know, everyone's the one when whatever. But like one of my exes, like I found out like in kind of a jarring way that he's engaged to somebody Mm -hmm. else. And like in addiction, that would have sent me totally fucking spiraling, you Mm -hmm. know, but being sober, the first thing I did was text my sponsor. The next thing he was like, are there any meetings that you can get to? I went, I cried about it. And like, I'm okay. Like it's, it wasn't the end of the world, but it would have been had I, if if I was still You didn't turn it into a victim parade. No, no, I didn't. Shockingly. Don't get me wrong. I still listen to sad Taylor Swift, but like, you know, I like, you know, I'm, I'm all right. And like other really fucked up stuff happened too. You know, and my first like two months of sobriety, I found my, (laughs) this is really graphic and we don't have to include this in the, you know, podcast if we don't want to, but like, I found my next door neighbor in the apartment next to me dead on the floor. What? Yeah. I thought, I thought, I thought I knew all the things. No, no. this is new. Yeah. Like she was, you know, an older woman. Oh my gosh. I noticed that she hadn't picked up the newspaper. So it was like 4 PM and I like texted her son who lives in Connecticut and you know, but like something like that, if I was still drinking, like I would have, you know, obviously like found her, called the cops, whatever, did everything that I did and then just gotten wasted because that's like a really fucking heavy thing to have happen to you. But like same Huge thing. Huge trauma. Yeah. I mean like right. But like I went to a meeting, I shared about it and it you know, it's like I've been given this like pathway to like literally you just do the next right thing. You reach out for help, you probably go to a meeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you don't drink. Yeah. You don't pick up. And as long as I don't do that, Shit's going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. I want to loop back around and talk about some of the fun stuff with your work. But before we do that, mm-hmm. um, one of my favorite things to ask people about is like, how do your relationships look different today? Uh, I feel like I show up for my friend the way that like Alex and Brandon sat me down and yeah. were like, I, I just don't think that the way that you're living is the way that is good for well whatever. I think that I can show up for my friends in similar ways and like, when I say I'm gonna be at a birthday party, I show up and like, I don't <laughs> fall asleep there. You know, I um, I remember, you know, like I, I will send gift baskets for, you know, friends, babies and, sh- you know, there's just like, I'm just a better person. Yeah. Like I'm a better friend, I'm a better son, I'm a better brother. Um, I try to be at least, you know, like, and I know that like, I'm trying my best, yeah. you know? Um, and my best is like, it's okay. Like it's not garbage anymore. Mm. Um, yeah, my relationships are good. And like, I'm going on, you know, first dates a lot 
and I'm not getting wasted. So like whenever there's not a second date, I'm like, okay, well, I tried my best and I didn't do anything embarrassing. So, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, like it's just, um, I'm certainly a better employee. I'm more proud of my work now than I was mm -hmm. ever before. Um, you know, I'm just able to like not second guess my value, whether it's in a friendship or, you know, a relationship or as an employee or anything like that, because I'm very aware of what I'm putting out into the world. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, they talk about how the gift of the gift of desperation is what gets us in. Right. And I think that similarly, um, kind of to s simplify some of the things that you're getting to is the the gift of that perspective shift is what keeps us if we let it mm -hmm. and um that's such a huge i mean it really really is such a huge gift because some of the things that haven't changed at all but our way of looking at it has, has changed like you start to realize that the longer I know I did, mm -hmm. you know, the longer and longer I stay sober, you know, and our love, our, our level of gratitude for those things that are still there, um, is just different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even like a conversation like this, right? Like I'm like, I, you know, not, I'm not usually speaking about myself or answering questions from someone else, but like this to me is like, you know, I've, I've done something like this before, but like, this is a whole it would be easier for me if I was still drinking to look at like something like this and be like, you know, like whatever. Uh -huh. But like, I'm very aware of how special this is. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's, it's like, it's, and that's only because I'm sober. You know what I mean? Like this conversation, the work that you do, like the city that I'm in, the team of people that are here, you know, it's like everything y'all are doing is going to help. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it's amazing. It is, you know, and even I, I say this all the time behind the scenes. I don't think I've ever said it live, like on, on one of our recordings, you know, but if, you know, if you're listening or watching right now, we're doing this for you. Even if you were the one person that tuned in. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are thousands upon thousands of people that we've been fortunate enough to, you know, snowball, um, this thing. And, um, you know, I tell, I tell people all the time that are kind enough to come on and share with us, like, you'll never know the impact that this is going to have. Um, but I have to tell you, you know, like <laughs> it's huge and there's so much gratitude in my heart, um, for me and everybody at promises. Um, and, uh, you know, the people that connect with your story that, that, um, you know, this might be that pivotal moment for them that says, Maybe I need to go to outpatient. Maybe I need to take my friend's advice. Mm -hmm. Maybe this isn't just um, fun drinking till my 42nd anniversary where <laughs> I'm going to have. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All these bottles of champagne. Yeah. It's, you know, I, the other thing, like I say often, and I know that like, it's all like God's timing, the universe's timing, whatever you want to say, like, I wish I got sober so much earlier, like, you know, and I, I still feel like I did a, you know, I'm glad I got sober when I did, yeah. you know, I like better late than never for sure. And like, I'm not late by any means, but like, you know, it, it truly is the best decision I've ever made. And so like, who knows how my life would be different if I had done it five years earlier. So like, if you're wondering, if you're looking for a sign, 
if you're wondering whether now's the time for you to get sober, it's now. Do it now. <laughs> this is your sign. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> love that. Um, ooh, I love that. You know, all about sign. How many times did we like, did you ever at, like ask for like, well, you know. Oh, yeah. You know. if, it, if this gets bad enough or whatever, I mean, I think we bargain and do things like that for things more than just addict, addictive behaviors, right. but things that we know that are medicators that aren't, aren't good for right. us all the time. Oh, for sure. I'll be like, oh, if it's windy when I get off of the subway, I'll get a milkshake. Mm. And you like, I'm, here I am looking at the weather app. Knowing... Did you not learn your lesson after the outpatient? <laughs> like we're still going with the milkshake. Wait, this is well. becoming a thing, right. I guess. Yeah. We, I, I do love a milkshake, you guys. Um, yeah. No, I like there was a billion red flags I blew past when I was drinking, like waiting for my sign to get sober. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And it was like, this, the sign is that little voice inside of you. That's just like worried, you know, mm -hmm. like that, that's the sign. I think if, if I had listened to that voice or trusted myself or thought I was, you know, worthy, it would have happened way earlier than it did. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that it happened when it did. Yeah. Um, or that it happened. Mm hmm. Um, you know, the whole trust the process thing, you know, it's like, this was your process for whatever reason it was. And I'm glad that it was, Yeah. um, you have one of what I think is one of the coolest jobs. <laughs> and, um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. So you get to report on some of what I think are the most fun stories at mm -hmm. ABC. Um, so, uh, it, would you share a little bit about like what, what those stories are and maybe a couple of, of your favorites that you've gotten to do? Sure. Um, so I like would describe my, I'm like an entertainment and lifestyle reporter for the network for ABC news. Um, so, you know, anything from like red carpet VMAs, um, lots of like fun Broadway stuff I get to do anything trendy, like on TikTok, Heck yeah. um, whatever Gen Z is talking about. I am aware of it, whether I want to be or not. Um, but it's also like a lot of feel good stuff too, mm -hmm. you know, which is like, I tried really hard to be like, you know, a very serious, like, <laughs> you know, like news anchor guy. And like, you know, I, I traveled, I went to one, you know, it was like, I was assigned to go to one campus after there was a mass shooting there. And I learned very quickly that like, I just don't have that in me. Like yeah. I can't separate the work from the, I've cried 500 times during this podcast already. Like yeah. just not for me. So I took like a hard left turn into like rainbow road and like joy and, you know, like entertainment type of, uh, reporting and, um, yeah, that's, that's what I've, you know, luckily enough been able to make a career out of. It's so perfect and fitting. So, all right. <laughs> um, so what are your, I'm putting you on the spot here. I know, but uh -huh. what, so what are, so if we could put it to three that you can think of right now, um, at least that come to your mind that you are very fond of stories that you've gotten to do. Who? Um, so I last summer, so t summer of 2022, I was in London for 13 days covering the Queens platinum Jubilee. Um, which was just like, it was like the whole city was like amped. I mean, I, you know, whatever. It was decked out like purple, like emblems everywhere. Mm -hmm. It was just like a very joy filled occasion. And like on top of this, like historic moment of the queen celebrating 70 years on the throne or whatever, like there were Diana Ross performed, you know, oh, like yeah. Barry Manilow was the, like, it was just like 
all of the Paddington Bear. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know, I know. It was just like, and I got to eat like really like the Queen's favorite smoked eel mousse, which was a low light of the of the entire trip. It sounds, it tasted as gross as it sounds. Um, but it was just like a very like immersive, you know, reporting journey for mm-hmm. me. So that's like a, a highlight. Um, last Christmas, I traveled across America searching for the ugliest Christmas sweater in America. Um, this is the type of very serious journalism we're talking about here, Love folks. It. Um, but that was really, really fun. Um, and I was like bouncing all over the country that week. That was really cool. So where, what was the, what was the number one? In San Diego, they made the world's largest, ugliest Christmas sweater. And it was wide enough, like big enough that if the Statue of Liberty wanted to wear it, she could. Um, and so like I was in, I was sitting in the neck hole of the sweater. This thing is massive. And I thought we were out of time for this segment. So I was like, Oh, a cute way to wrap. Cause I was talking to the anchors who were in New York. Uh-huh. I was like, I'm going to just start crawling through this, like into the sleeve. Uh-huh. And they, I guess we had more time than I thought. So they continued to ask me questions as I'm like burrowing into this <laughs> massive sweater. And uh, he was like, is it comfortable? And I was like, yeah, it's really warm in here. But like, you just see this like lump moving through this giant sweater. Yeah. Um, so like, that was fun. Um, and then like on a more like serious note, you know, some of the like more like heartwarming stuff that I've done. I remember when the pandemic first started and they stopped taking visitors at a, uh, like nursing homes and things like that. This woman took a job washing dishes in a nursing home so that she could see her husband who was in an assisted care facility. <sighs> and like sharing a story like that at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was just like, we, the world was bleak, right? Yeah. And so like a story of just like, you know, humanity and like people like stepping up in ways that like they had to, you know, so as fun as it is to crawl through a massive sweater in San Diego, you know, it's also like a a gift to be able to, you know, spotlight stories. And that's like a woman who, you know, you would pass her in the street and not, you know, right. Whatever. So, um, that story always stands out to me because it was just like, I was proud that I, you know, that was something that, you know, we were able to share and, and especially in a time when the world was like, spooky sure well speaking from okay so you just shared some of your favorites but you you know as we've spoken and i learned about a, a story that has become like really interesting and special to me um lexi uh-huh. um which i just i'd love to talk about for a second because for anybody who hasn't known this was such a beautiful idea that was born and like talk about a gift that like keeps on giving um i mean like it it has inspired me since I learned about it. So just, you know, how, how would you explain that, that story? Yeah. A- uh, so I mentioned that I kind of talk about TikTok type things too. So there's this, um, woman who, uh, is known as the serial tipper on TikTok, And basically she'll just, she like asked her followers, um, you know, donate whatever you can, if you want to donate, a dollar if you want to donate 25 cents if you want to donate 10 bucks like whatever uh, and it started during the pandemic as well and so she would pool all of the money that her followers would venmo her and then go around and tip people that really needed it so mm-hmm. whether that is a waiter or someone you know playing music on the street because like especially at the beginning of the pandemic like live music venues were shut down you know like yeah. people were not eating out so uh she'll just like surprise people with these 
tips that, you know, like thousand dollar tips that, you know, people that's life changing money for someone yeah. who, who really needs it. Um, and it's, you know, totally random. And she would remind the, the recipients of the tips, like, this is not just for me. This is from, a, you know, hundreds of strangers on the internet that, you know, and it's grown and grown and grown. And, um, yeah, it's just like, uh, you know, she just like wanted to help people who needed it. And, it, it, it also goes to show that like the internet is not always just an awful place. Like there are very, yes. very kind people on the internet too. Yes. And I, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so freaking much. I mean, cause when I, when I hear about that, I think, you know, Johnny in Milwaukee and Krista in Kentucky <laughs> donated however much money and they'll never know each other, but they had a shared experience of goodness and wholesomeness mm-hmm. in potentially monumentally changing someone else's life because of, uh, an, an idea right. this woman had. Yeah. And, um, she's, uh, a Nashvilleian as well, which so I think mm-hmm. is really cool. Um, yeah. so I also, I, not that you're asking and I know we're like, whatever, one of my other favorite stories I did also because we're in Tennessee is I interviewed and more than uh, I've interviewed her a couple of times, the youngest American to have orbited the earth and the first person with a prosthesis. So she was a St. Jude patient as a child and beat cancer. She is now a physician's assistant at St. Jude's to give back to, you know, the place that like, you know, she has, she has incredible memories of, you know, from the nurses who like, you know, lifted her up while she was there. But then when SpaceX announced they were sending th- four people to space and it was not just one of those like little flights that like, mm-hmm. you know, no offense up and back. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, they orbited the earth for three days. Um, but Haley was selected to go as a representative from St. Jude so that they could raise money for the children's hospital. Wow. And, um, she's just like the coolest person ever. And like, similar to Lexi, like just like everything she does is to make the world a better place. And it's mm-hmm. just like, you know, dang, like, and in my line of work and yours too, you get to talk to people like that sometimes. And you're just like, so it's just inspiring. It's like, I forget that like people can be great. <laughs> people can be great. And I think that it's, you know, you and I were having this conversation recently about how, you know, with, uh, you know, as the promises come true in our own life and things are granted us, you know, and we move forward and things are given to us, you know, realizing that and, and the, this is behavior modeled for us from people who have gone before that not to waste opportunities that we no longer need, that we can recycle those and look for people in our life that are, um, in need, whether it's a job opportunity that, you know, a contract work that we wouldn't need or a, you know, whatever you name it, but stuff we wouldn't have thought about before we got sober and gifts that keep on giving. Um, so I just like stories like that are, um, so cool. Yeah. And I think that like when we hear about them, they only inspire and encourage us to want to do better. And I hope that like, as we age, like we're just going to be one day they'll write stories about both of us and be like, gosh, what awesome human being. No, that's so prideful. <laughs> oh my gosh. Cut. Don't, don't include that. Um, oh no, that, that, that's the real alcoholic side of me showing. So yeah, leave, leave it in. Um, uh, we connect on brokenness, right? That's right. Um, and I'm certainly not perfect. Me neither. And like, it's been one of the things that, you know, I, and like what, like, 
you know, like I said, like even when I was first getting sober, like I wanted to do it perfectly. Mm. Like I wanted to set a record for, you know, fixing, curing my alcohol. You know what I mean? Like I wanted it to be, but it's life on life's terms, you know, like I can't, you know, but, um, yeah. But if someone does want to write about me one day and say that I was perfect, like feel free, (laughs) have my permission. I love it. Uh, was there a certain point where you realized that like the, the control thing, cause that for a lot of us, once we, I mean, we, we start to, we get honest, we radically accept, but that like relinquishing control can sometimes take, even though we're working our way through the steps. Do you remember, was there a point where you like had that, that vision of clarity where you were like, okay, I've tried to take it back over and over and over. And I actually believe the thing that we're saying constantly, which is like, it's not in my hands. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like probably just like, I don't know. I don't know if there is like a specific time where I was like, Oh, like it's probably a lesson that I just like continue to have to learn. Yeah. Um, my latest like thing is just like, you know, I, I'm 31. So like a lot of my friends are married or getting married or whatever. And like whatever timeline I had in my head for settling down, like Mm -hmm. it it was wrong and it continues to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just like, and the same thing with getting sober, like, you know, whatever timeline I, however much control I thought I had over it, like Mm -hmm. was incorrect. And, um, you know, so it's, I don't think it's like something, I I think it's a lesson that I'm continuing to learn. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, I would say the same thing. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, uh, for myself and, uh, so that, so that anybody, uh, connecting that wants to can shower you with, uh, (laughs) well wishes when this, when the day comes, but when is, when is your, what, what day is your sobriety birthday? Uh, August 24th. It's really close to my birthday birthday. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Exciting. Uh, Yeah. I'm really excited. And, um, you know, Taylor has a song called August, which now I'm gonna, is that why you chose August to get sober? Yeah. And I chose, (laughs) yeah, it's why I chose Uh August. Uh Yeah. Um, listen, I can make anything into a Taylor Swift song if I really try hard enough. Um, and this is no exception. Uh, (laughs) but yeah, August 24th is, is the day. Um, but I've like, my friends are probably so sick of me, but like I've, you know, come over. It's, you know, it's three months, it's six months, it's, you know, whatever it is. Like, and I, like, I love celebrating things. Same. And so this has just been, you know, it's opened a whole new can of worms, mm-hmm. but good worms, gummy worms. Yeah. Like, I love that. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Yes. Like, you know, I just like, there's a reason to celebrate. Oh, it's my first wedding. Like I've gone to my first wedding sober. I've gone to my first karaoke night sober. Like, and everything is a reason to celebrate. Like, you well, know. not everybody, it steps into that so easily. And I love that you're touching on it, that it is important to recognize those achievements as achievements and milestones worth celebrating, not just like have tos and well, I did that, you know, sponsor said to whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like absolutely worth celebrating. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we were going through the laundry list of like, you know, when I had asked you like, well, what are the, you know, what are the things that the yets to do that are, you know, have worried you or whatever. And to be able to approach that with a perspective that's so positive, that's like, I went through this and I was okay. I mean, like, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You're talking about like the miracle of shame and guilt no longer being the shackles that hold you down. Mm -hmm. How many people are walking around with that? So, um, I hope this is a, a, a trigger point for some people to like, you know, launch their own journey. Um, I know, I, I know it will be. And, and yeah, I like the way <laughs> I slid into your DMS without having like known much, you know, never having met in person. Um, like not to say that my DMS are open, but like, I hope by like coming out in this month of pride as a sober person that like ask, you know, for help. Like I, I'm, I don't have all the answers, but like I have some, we know. will have a list on all of our, <laughs> on all of our podcast episodes. We've got a whole list of that. So we'll have your website stuff and, 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 and Instagram yeah. and all of that. But I'll we send also them all have, your way for the yes, record, just we, so you know, <laughs> we have, we have all kinds of resources. If you scroll down whatever platform you're on, uh, right now, um, if you're, if you need help, uh, yeah, it is there. Yeah. So, um, and I, also if you're gay, be gay. Do you can celebrate that too? <laughs> absolutely. If you're any, on any spectrum in LGBTQ plus, uh, community, I'm here to throw we, glitter for all of it. You're sober. Yes. Go off. I wish we actually brought glitter today. Gosh, that would have been great. I usually have some on me and Aaron you know. would have killed us. <laughs> That's Aaron, true. do you have any glitter? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, uh, we're throwing figurative glitter for, right. for all of you That's right, right now. Um, we'll add it in post. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So this is the way that I love to close out because I think it's just a great wrap. Um, again, putting you on the spot cause you didn't know I was going to ask this, but like, you know, to think of a last piece of encouragement for anybody that's been tuning in that has identified and said, Oh, this part of his story or all of his story, mm -hmm. he's telling my story. Mm -hmm. Um, what last piece of encouragement would you like to leave for that person or those people? Um, I would, I would say, uh, whatever rock bottom you might be waiting for it, it maybe it doesn't exist mm. um you know like i was drinking far too much but you know on instagram at least like my life looked great uh and so like you know if you're just if you're thinking about getting sober, I mean, like I said earlier, I wish I did it earlier. It's the best decision I've ever made. Um, and like your life can be good now while you're drinking, but it can be so much better. That's right. Um, it doesn't have to be like a total shit show <laughs> for you to have to want to stop. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. And like the other point that I would like to make too, is that like, as was reminded to me, you know, the other night in that meeting, like the parts of you that you might think are broken or like irredeemable or ugly or whatever, um, the shit that you're hiding right now is the shit that's going to make me fall in love with you and other people fall in love with you and see you for who you are and connect with you in those spaces, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so like, you know, it's pride month. And even if you're not, in the LGBTQIA community, like mm -hmm. 
the parts of you that make you feel othered or different or marginalized or whatever, like there are people that will celebrate you for those things. You Absolutely. Know? We're out here. Yes. Yes, indeed. And, uh, whether it's me and will or people that are physically mm -hmm. close to you, mm -hmm. um, we encourage you to connect by doing the first step, which is asking for help, mm -hmm. whether it's help because you're lonely or help because you're struggling. And, um, so I will close out with reminding everyone the way I always do, um, that it's never ever too late to start loving yourself and you're only ever one decision away from a completely different life. Thanks again, Will. This has been great. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health. If you or a loved one are struggling with trauma, addiction, or mental health, we are ready to answer your questions and help you take that next step. Call our admission center at 888-648-4098 or visit us online at www.promises.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help.